1: What's up guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. Hello, Danny. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing well. Had a long day, and I feel like my voice is going to crack throughout today's episode. I could just feel it coming. Well, I think we're used to it by now. <laughs> you know, the combination of not much not getting much sleep and spending most of my day talking to people has really doesn't by 9 a.m 10 p.m or 9 a.m 9 p.m doesn't do wonders for your voice
2: no it doesn't no no, it doesn't what are you laughing at (laughs) i don't know it's just it's it's obvious (laughs) yeah it's
1: not good for your voice um what's up guys welcome to another episode Today we're going to be speaking about something that's very close and dear to my heart. And that is the Polish people. The reason Poles. why the, the Polish people are dear to my heart is because my forefathers are from a land that may have been called Poland at one point. And I have a Polish last name, Zamoda. Zmota. Zmota. like the average normal person. Is that, is that
0: actually how it's pronounced in Polish? Do you know how it's actually pronounced? Or are we just pronouncing Shmo- it?
1: It's pronounced Shimota in Poland. Shimota. Shimota. Oh, like a smoking
0: a pancake? A smoking a smota?
1: <laughs> well, my name was almost Stanislaw Shimota. Yeah, I remember that. That's actually a really fun fact. Stanislaw. And Stanislaw Shimota was almost my name. I have a, I think, an uncle a great-uncle who was um, some military commander, and my dad wanted to name me after him. Um, the other name was Joseph. Joseph Zamoda was the other option, which was another military man. But they went with Henry, and ironically, my grandfather is named Henrik, my mother's maiden name is Henry, and they're just like, all right, well, here's some common ground. Why don't we just call him Henry? Henry Never maiden name, my father's name. Was there, there any, was there any Henrys Henry. in your family that were in the military? No. I'm, I honestly think... I did the little family search history on Ancestry.com, and I went back to my family tree as far as I could, as far as they have records, and there's no Henry. There's no Henrik. Mm-hmm. There are Stanislavs. There are Ludwicks. There are... Um, what are some other ones? Zigfrieds. There are... Those are all um, German names. <laughs> yeah, they're actually all they're German names. Well... It's kind. Of, Henrik's also, I guess. Henrik can be a lot of different things, but, you know, hein, Heinrich. There's um. I guess there's 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 you know, Europeans can share names or different cultures can share names, especially within the same region. But yeah, the I Polish mean, that's a really people, good segue for for today's episode. Actually, just because you know,
0: you're of Polish descent, but you know bunch of the people in your ancestry all have German last names and, you know, to the, you know, outside person looking in, that's like, well, I thought you said you were Polish. Those are a bunch of German names. And I guess what we'll find out today is, is just how closely intertwined those
1: are. But first, before we get into this, we need to talk about my favorite thing about Polish, my Polish heritage. And what's that? Polish jokes. (laughs) So, and it's my one. It's, uh, this is the only time I can be discrim- I can discriminate against people because it's my own people. So <laughs> I, I take that card and run with it. So, did you hear this one? Which one? Did you hear about the Polak who thought his wife was trying to kill him? No. On her dressing table, he found a bottle of polish remember, remover polish remover <laughs> polish remover yuck 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 um here's another one what happened to the polish hockey team oh uh, what's that they all drowned in spring training <laughs> <laughs> all right all right <laughs> what what is what why is there no water in poland why because the person who invented the formula died
0: Oh, that's a... I should have known that one. I knew that one. (laughs) I got a dirty one for you. What? Why why did the Polak put ice in his condom? (laughs) Why? To keep the swelling down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, here's another one. How did the Germans conquer Poland so fast? Oh, I feel like this one's going to take a dark turn. How? (laughs) They marched in backwards, and the Polars thought they were leaving. (laughs) <laughs> or here's the one that I, that I think I've heard the most And my mm-hmm. other, my other half of my family's Irish. So they used to always tell me Polish jokes. Um, how do you stop the Polish cavalry? Turn off the carousel. <laughs> I yeah. <know> that one. <laughs> you must've heard that one from me. <laughs> yeah. or, or here's no. one more. How do you know if you're in front of a Polish firing squad? How? They're standing in a circle. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, man. There's a million of these. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's so many of them. They're great, though. I love Polish jokes. Um, So today, what we're going to do is that we're going to talk about Poland because it's a weird state. And Poland has a very confusing history. It is um, one of the most confusing histories in Europe, in my opinion most central and eastern european states have very complicated histories and they have to do with partitions and and um you know the restructuring of states and centuries of war but i think the key thing to know that characterizes polish history is that before world war one the poles were spread out in, across three different states so they were low they were they were the, the polish diaspora was Well, I guess it wasn't a diaspora, but Poland was spread out between Austria Hungary, Germany, and the Russian Empire. So I'm Polish. My family is actually from, it's not, my family's not even from like a Polish zone, a a Polish partition zone. My family is from Kiev, which was part of the Russian Empire, which was part of Russia for for centuries. So you're Ukrainian then? Yeah, I guess I'm Ukrainian. Um, during World War One, my my family fought for the like all their military history is is on the side of the Russians.
0: Oh shit! So um, you're a
1: Russian? I knew it. All those people in the comment section
0: saying we're Russian shills—they they had something going.
1: <laughs> they're they're correct. Traced back my family history. Turns out that <laughs> I'm I'm a Russophobe, or no Russophile. Russophobe yeah. is <laughs> you're not afraid of them he's is he's de snake to my mongoose he's the mongoose to my snake or the snake to my mongoose whatever way it's bad from austin powers um when um <clears throat> so yeah my my family's from kiev um they were actually essentially kicked out of the country by the bolsheviks after the russian revolution um you know they were they were apparently smuggled out because there was a death sentence signed on them, so their their servants had the, you know, they they were from a Polish nobility family, and their servants had warned them. They're like, "Hey, the shit's gonna go down, and um, you're you guys are marked for death." So they were smuggled out of the country by um, by basically dressing in like peasant attire, and then their their servants like got them out of the country and got them somehow got them to Italy first. And then I think to France where they lived for most of their life. And then eventually I think my grandfather went back to Poland for a little bit when, you know, Poland was the, the second Republic of Poland was created, you know, the state that's between, you know, the world war one and, 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 uh, the Soviet annexation or the invasion of it. They ended up back in there because my grandfather was a bike racer and, um, then he moved to America, I believe, in the forties. But yeah, I mean, it's a very whatever, interesting history.
0: Whatever happened to the uh, the land that your family had?
1: It, it was confiscated by the Soviet Union. You think so that maybe if things settle fam-
0: down, you can get some reparations?
1: <laughs> no reparations. My family, so my Polish side of the family, fucking hates communists because mm-hmm. the communists like took all of their possessions. I see. Um. But yeah. It's all making sense now, Henry. (laughs) A lot of poles, a lot of poles, um, a lot of poles in that part of the world were actually a wealthier class, and it has to stem for a whole bunch of reasons, um, going back to kind of the feudal period. But um, going back to, you know, where the poles were before World War One, the Polish state that we kind of know now doesn't really happen until. The Russian empire implodes during the the Bolshevik revolution and then you know the Austrian Hungarian empire falls and then and uh, you know the Germans are defeated during world war one this Polish state it appears on a map out of nowhere I mean not out of nowhere but it reappears on a map after a hiatus of about 150 years of not existing now the problem with the creation of this new state in the 20th century the definition of Poland wasn't really clear. On one hand, it could be considered the boundaries of the pre-partitioned Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. However, the problem with that is the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a multicultural state. It was sort of like the Russian Federation right now. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a bunch of different ethnicities. Um, Actually, Poles weren't even a majority. the vast majority of people there were not ethnic Poles. That's, that's something that's important to, to, to note when looking at the Commonwealth. And most of the people who lived in those borders really didn't have a, des- a desire to live in a Polish state anyway. So on the other hand, Poland could be defined ethnically as the territory that's inhabited by Polish speakers. So this brings up the age-old question of nationalism, specifically civic versus ethnic nationalism. Mm -hmm. And in Western Europe, you you have more of this cultural dynamic of civic nationalism. Countries like France and Portugal and the Netherlands and England, uh, they were formed and perceived as unique entities within their respective states meaning these national identities were nurtured by centralized state institutions which fostered a civic duty to the state so the state served as a central focal point of identity not necessarily the ethnicity right however central eastern and even southern europe are much different in states like germany and italy the sentiment of nationalism emerged before the establishment of these unified national states, meaning there were national movements before these states even existed. So before the German Empire even existed, there was a national there were nationalist German movements, you know, before uh, you know many of these before Italy, before Croatia, um, you know, their primary, source of national identity was not the state as itself it was their community. it was the nation um, you know the imagined community which what we we talk about all the time right And really what is a nation? the nation in in Europe at this time because all everyone's white you know there's not that much of a racial difference It's a common language. You know, there's not that much, you can't really tell that much. You know, I'm, I'm Polish. You can tell I'm if you look at me and you know what Polish people kind of look like. You can tell, if you look at my face, you can tell I have a big Polish face. Polish people kind of look like Russian people. They kind of, they're, they're Slavic people to me. I, you know, most Slavic people have kind of very, they look kind of similar. You can kind of tell, um, so what's the difference like why, like why is there a history of so much like violence between these different groups in central Europe? There's so much there's such a large history of ethnic cleansing and genocide and just horrible murders between between uh you know different Slavic groups and even Germans as well which are which are close in in relation. Um You know, the difference is really is, you know, two things. And and I think one takes priority later in the 20th century. It was, you know, first religion, and then it moved to becoming the common language. And then, you know, these these really just became political tools. They became political situations, political differences. So being a Catholic or being a Lutheran in Europe, in pre-modern Europe, wasn't just a religion it was a political affiliation right being a german speaker or being a polish speaker in 19th century prussia wasn't just your your language because a lot of people knew both languages it was your ability to you know receive jobs or uh did to you know get the nepotism (laughs) nepotism benefits that go along with that right so that's really what it is it's the language and And, different languages are
0: and and this like bundling of of ideologies by language or nationalism or to your point like maybe even religion in certain cases this uh is specifically the the language and nationalism bits were proposed you know pretty early in in the 19th century by german nationalists Uh, and you kind of mentioned that already but you know, it was basically during the Napoleonic Wars that destroyed the Holy Roman Empire. You know, the, the shock of the loss of, you know, what they considered their fatherland made a lot of German speaking intellectuals come up with the idea that the German language is the defining characteristic of whatever future, and I guess the word nation really wasn't very, super popular around this time, but whatever the future nation would be, and you know they, they borrowed here the term nation from you know this crazy revolutionary france that's trying out this new thing called nation states right um and the equation of like language with with the national spread to you know uh basically every corner of of central europe and prior to that you know prior to the modern period um of of basically like this ethno-linguistic nationalism Uh, there was whole illiterate populations uh, that spoke their local dialects and rarely ventured outside of their place of origin. And, you know, these were, you know, peasants and and they they weren't really linked to any nobility class. And and, and so the social and political gap between the peasantry and the nobility was much, much bigger than, you know, between say nobles of different religions or nobles of different regions. So realistically, ethno-linguistic nationalism what was what closed that gap between those those social strata, the the, the hierarchies between the the rich and the poor, uh, and and this was imagined that you know oh we're closing this gap because we all speak the same language therefore we're all the same thing but you know it, it's really fascinating how that how that works out because there's so much that would have been different from you know your random you know small village German peasant versus your you know former duke of wherever <laughs> you know. A lot of differences there, with the exception of, of course, maybe they speak a similar language.
1: Yeah, you know the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II had a lot more in common with with Nicholas with Tsar Nicholas II than their yeah. respective. I mean, they were cousins, by the way. Right. But right, then their then their you know their their uh, native populations. So all these nobility nobles had a lot more in common with the other rich than than they did with their kind of homogeneous population and um, it is you know if you look at the world of 1780 for example, or the world prior to the, the you know the 18th century, the world was just much smaller for people. I mean not just on a local level the world was just much smaller for for Europe. you couldn't travel as quickly you know the communication lines were it was much harder to communicate you couldn't mass educate people there wasn't really a, there wasn't a mass media. There were local journals and newspapers, but there wasn't an ability to kind of merge and kind of forge people into one collective identity. So you lived in a small world. You lived in a small world where really there was kind of like a village patriarch type figure or a village council type filler figure who would who would really be the the you know the the stone where the what your world tilted around or, or spun around it wasn't like this loyalty to some national state in in paris or something or this national state in warsaw or berlin it was your local your your local tribe village or whatever so that was really the dynamic you know this concept of nation or nationalism didn't really exist until you know state structures became more powerful and used that really to um, you know expand and become more powerful but um you know in academic Discourse, the Poles are seen as this example of an ethnic type of nationalism So national identity that is strongly bound up by the Polish language and Catholicism And today that image is very true Poland is about 96% or I think even more um, Vast majority, more so than other European countries um, They're ethnically Polish
0: Yep, I when definitely I say more so. That's that stat, Poland yeah. is definitely more Polish than other European nations.
1: <laughs> no, I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to <laughs> no, no, say I that know, know. Poland is say. more Pol- Poland is more Polish than Germany is German Correct. or France yeah. is French. Like those countries have much higher ethnic diversity and 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 migrants. And you know, Poland has extremely strong immigration laws to keep it 96%, 97 percent ethnically polish and polish speaking and even now with all these ukrainian refugees you hear complaints like hey like are these people going to be speaking ukrainian or are they going to be learning polish that's fascinating Um, now the thing is in the early 20th century there was a very different dynamic going on because the predecessor state of the polish second republic the state that is progressively partitioned out of existence in 1772 1793 and then 1795 there's three different partitions um that the austrians germans and and russians engage in um actually i think the austrians only engage in two out of the three the first and the third one so they don't do the the second the one set in 1793 but i digress they're the ones who kind of chop up the former collapsing commonwealth consisting of the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So it was a dual commonwealth. And I think many Polish historians will um, subsume the Grand Duchy of Lithuania into this general term Poland, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: really with the intention of implying that the Grand Duchy was just a junior partner in the Union, and it was really just Poland, you know, it was a Polish empire, essentially, or mm-hmm. a Polish ruling class. And the Lithuanians were just kind of like this autonomous zone. I don't really know how true that is. I'm not an expert on this government or the powers or, or you know, who hold the, held the 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 true strings. But in, you know, the history I've read, read from Polish historians, they de- certainly make it seem like the Lithuanians were just like, kind of like this junior partner, subservient to the, the, the Polish nobility class. Um, again, I don't know how true that is. Right. And that, that's interesting that,
0: that a lot of historians will imply that because, you know, Lithuania is still a thing now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, 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 it's just very interesting how they, how they decided, all right, well, this is mostly or basically Poland. But I think what's interesting is that only the central and eastern, like two thirds of today's Poland overlap with the western half of the former Commonwealth, like, Kingdom of Poland part. And the remaining third of today's Poland in the west was ceded by Germany after World War II. So today's western Poland was historically part of Prussia and the Holy Roman Empire. So it wasn't Poland to begin with. And the eastern half of the territory, you know, the the Commonwealth is, is basically basically modern day Belarus, um, Lithuania, and parts of Ukraine with some territories included in like Estonia and Latvia and Russia. So those places, that part of it was also wasn't Poland.
1: Yeah, the, that part is like not Poland at all. It's all, it's all, it's Belarusia, uh, Lithuania, and, and the Ukraine. Ukraine, it's all, it's just like, mm-hmm. it's a, basically the Baltic, the Baltic states. I mean, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a humongous landmass. It was the largest pop out of like out of one state structure for about a 50 year period. It had the largest population in Europe mm-hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. It might be longer than that, but it was a humongous structure. And it was probably the most powerful state institution in Europe for about a 40 to 50 year period. So they were a yeah. juggernaut at one part, point.
0: For, for a little over a generation. Yeah, for sure. For, for I me, mean, yeah, it's... For, it's, it's it's super weird i mean it, like all, all of this weird border stuff uh, like aside you know obviously poles are you know real you know the people exist right even if we're unclear about where, where they where their territory or where their their land was supposed to be so like maybe we can talk about like who are like who
1: are the poles like who are these people the poles are descendants of the Slavs who settled in the plains of northern Europe between the rivers of, of Oder and Vistula. So the first Polish state that comes into existence is the ninth century, is in the ninth century. It's from it's the Pious dynasty. And the founder is a man named Pius the Wheelwright, who is basically a King Arthur type figure. Meaning, he probably wasn't a real person. He was more yeah. of just kind of a, a man than a myth and a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the people living in this region were always under the threat from their neighbors. So, their neighbors being dramatic and then uh, dramatic tribes to the west and other Slavic tribes to the to the east. The thing about Poland is that the landscape is flat. There's no natural borders. There's no mountains there's no oceans it's a very difficult place to defend or to establish defensive positions it's a place that's basically asking to get invaded it's not a great place to mm-hmm. start a state thus any state that existed in this region always relied on some sort of alliance mm-hmm. so the leadership of the pious dynasty they allied they allied itself with the holy roman emperor they converted to roman christianity and essentially they placed the state under the authority of the pope throughout the you know throughout the middle ages and what this does it links poland to the west during the great east-west schism in the 11th century because you know in eastern europe and poland's in eastern europe it's Traditionally, most Eastern Europeans are are you know Christian Orthodox rather than Roman Catholic. Right. This is the reason why they they stay Catholic. Now, during the next several hundred years, um, you know there's a complicated history that we're not going to get into because it would take too long. But there's a you know there's a history of partitions into smaller states and then reunifications and and vice versa. The big major development in terms of state structures that that's really important to understand and to mark down is is the Union of Lublin, that takes place in 1569, when it, it's basically a formal political military alliance between Poland and Lithuania is created, and it's a shared monarch, and um, you know they were united under this single state. But these entities they retain their separate legal identities and, and administrative apparatuses. Both of these states were completely dominated by their noble classes. It was a it was a purely feudal system, and it was a lot like Russia, mm-hmm. meaning that it was a you know it was dumb. Domi- it was the relation, the dynamic was that um, you know serfdom was the dominant form of relationship between the peasants and the nobility so big surf huge surf population small nobility no noble class it was a multi-level marketing scheme basically (laughs) yeah It, it was it was it was quite an intense feudal system there now this this commonwealth so you touched on some of the territory it's it's so it's you know at its height includes what's in modern-day Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia, Russia. Um, in the Polish part, Latin was the, was the most spoken language, or the official language, that is, which was spread by the Jesuit educational system. Um, the Lithuanian part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, they spoke Ruthenian languages. And then there was also big German populations as well and um but but what was more important than language was religion so polishness it, it correlated with catholicism um, ruthenians and lithuanians they they um you know correlated with with greek catholicism and or in, in orthodoxy uh prussianists and germans with lutheranism and, and you know jews with judaism there's also big, you know, Jewish populations here. Um, in the 18th century, the Commonwealth <clears throat> starts to fall apart due to you know a combination of a lot of like different internal revolts and peasants' revolts and and just they had a lot of different issues. Um, there were three separate partitions. So I mentioned this before. I think 1772, 1793, 1795. Russia received 62% 62 of the Commonwealth's territory and then about 48% of its population. It's a big chunk. Yeah. Its partition zone zone coincided with today's southern Latvia, Lithuania, Belarus, and then west-central Ukraine. The Habsburg gained about 18% of uh, Polish-Lithuanian lands. They get about 30% of the inhabitants. Um, today, their zone would be split between Western Ukraine and then Southeastern and Central Poland. And then Prussia took 20% of the Commonwealth's area and 22% of its populace, including the city of Warsaw. And they, in Prussia uh, annexes the largest Polish-speaking population, what you would call, you know, I guess in technical terms, the Slavophone Catholics. Mm-hmm. So, Polish you know, Prussia is, yeah. so Prussia is this unique entity because you think of it as always being very German. But in reality, Prussia was, a, you know, very much of Slavic dramatic character rather than just a German character. Because there was a lot of Slavs that lived there. So, um, Poland is restored as an independent state briefly by Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon sought the support of Polish nobles during his camp- campaigns against the Polish and the Russians. Excuse me, against the the Prussians and the Russians, and the new state that was created, that he created, was the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, and um, you know it didn't contain all the territories, but um, it did receive you know land from Napoleon and and you know the Poles there they greeted Napoleon with but as liberate as a liberator. Um, the Polish nobles believed it was the first step to the later resurgence of Poland-Lithuania. Now, from an ethno-linguistic perspective, this duchy was the first Polish state in modern times. It's estimated that Poles, or Slavophone Catholics, accounted for about 80% of the population there. Now, the Duchy of Warsaw doesn't last that long because Napoleon's obviously defeated at in, in Moscow, and this becomes really one of the great national humiliations in Polish history because at the Congress of Vienna, you know, meant to kind of settle all the affairs from the Napoleonic War, a lot of this no this noble class, they were trying to recreate a, get some type of Polish state out of this, and they end up not getting it. So they were denied their own state at the Congress of Vienna. The Duchy of Warsaw was then organized into an autonomous Grand Duchy of Poznan, or Poznan, um, with with German and Polish being co-official languages. So this leads to German becoming the dominant language, and really the language that's used in as in you know within the administration apparatus. Now, um, before the, the, the Napoleonic Wars, the, you know, the Lutheran Prussian elite looked at German itself as a peasant language. Mm-hmm. They also hated Latin due to, due to its, uh, you know, ideological link with Catholicism. What was spoken by the Prussian elite was French. Just like the Russians. It's really you know, funny. the Russian elite and the Russian elite and the front and the Prussian elite, they all spoke French to each other. That was the language of like, you know, the rich people. That was the language of those of the of the upper class. All the people who spoke these dramatic and Slavic languages were basically just these poor peasant people. these, uh these bougie know, these, people these these elite global elite pedophiles they realized that Prussia's population was overwhelmingly dramatic speaking they were most likely never going to learn French so German was used as a language taught in the elementary school system and you know a lot of the elementary schools you know the elementary school system is is essentially created to, to create this sense of national Cohesion.
0: Right.
1: Within teaching the young. state. So there would be no domination from, you know, there. I mean, because Napoleon, you know, destroyed all these German states. Right. You know, he broke them all up and used them as playthings. So they were like, we're not letting that happen again. We need to get some national pride and start teaching German and people not to run away in battle because they're fighting for something much greater than their local town they're fighting for this great Prussian or German state now in Russia another unit is created called the Kingdom of Poland and I know this is probably getting confusing at this point yeah I've gone cro- I've gone cross-eyed myself I have to say because there's all these different names. These Polish kingdoms, and there's multiple Polish kingdoms. So, this and is a separate different Poland Polish congresses. In Russia, right. And I think oh, I've gone cross eyed. Um, yeah, it's confusing. But there's another entity. The, the other big entity is obviously in Russia. Mm-hmm. Kingdom of Poland, Congress Poland is another way to use it. I think we'll just call it Congress Poland. It was this semi autonomous state in the Russian Empire with the Tsar taking the title King of Poland. So my family didn't live in this part of Poland. They lived in Kiev, which wasn't part of Congress Poland. Um, I think they may have been part from there. I know some of their family was from Warsaw at some point. It's confusing. It's hard to trace back your family roots. Um, but with um with the Tsar taking... The Tsar took the title of kingdom, king of Poland. And, um, you know, in Congress Poland the tsar's actual policy so Nicholas I was a tsar at this time his actual policy was to preserve the Polish language and the reason why is that the Polish speaking part of the population tended to be education educated i almost said they tended to be educational <laughs> <laughs> you ever see that clip it's like a it's a pro wrestling clip where um, the wrestler, I forget what wrestler it is, but he's talking to a journalist. And he's like, You're not even a real journalism. <laughs> You're not even a real journalism. <laughs>
0: okay, so, so, Tsar, right? Tsar Nicholas, he's got this other Poland in Russia called Congress Poland. He's technically the king of this Poland and he's preserving Polish in there because the polish people tended to be in the more educated and you know that's good for economic development basically right
1: yeah because again poland polish is in in a large part is a language spoken by the the nobility class Mm -hmm. of the commonwealth so a lot of them tended to to be educated God, it's really hard to keep this straight.
0: Um, I think uh, maybe we can read a quote um, by Tomasz Kamusewa, uh, and, and maybe this will help us kind of sort this out a little bit. Uh, it reads, The Russian policy of preserving Polish as the language of administration in its partition zone of Poland, Lithuania, and in the Congress kingdom, coupled with the rapid development of the Polish language educational systems in both areas— achieved something that had eluded reformers from Poland-Lithuania's commission of national education. The Russian authorities' decisions created a genuine, though nascent, Polish-language book market whose mainstay was the production of textbooks for the two Polish-language educational systems. These developments convinced many Polish-Lithuanian nobles and the coalescing Polish intelligentsia who emerged among the mobles, uh, excuse me, nobles that it was practical and advisable to buy and read Polish language books. It was then in the Polish ethno-national case that the epoch of vernacular print capitalism tentatively commenced, so crucial for imagining any nation into existence. Okay, so it, it, they just sold them shit. <laughs> they were like, hey, if we get everybody to learn Polish, then we could sell a bunch of Polish books. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the more the language went around, I mean, the more people spoke it and the more people spoke it.
0: What what are, what are some Polish writers? I don't know. The 18th century.
1: Are you trying to say another Polish joke? (laughs) No. (laughs)
0: Uh, yeah, I don't recognize any of these names and I'm not even going to try and pronounce any of them either. (laughs) So, sorry.
1: (laughs) So, I mean. The point is this Polish identity is based on language. It's yeah. starting to and, and this identity is starting to form across all these different partition zones. The political situation started to change when segments of the Polish Lithuanian nobility realized that the Tsar was not really eager to reestablish Polish, you know, the the old Commonwealth system. And as a result, there's a noble anti Russian uprising that breaks out in 1830 and this uprising basically i mean there's a sporadic polish nobility uprisings for about a 30-year period and these uprisings are brutally suppressed the russians they crack down on the polish language and russian is eventually introduced as a compulsory subject in polish schools i'm sure that really hurt their polish book sales yeah. <laughs> now, many Poles who did not want to submit to these conditions, they moved to Galatia. So that's that was referred to as Austrian Poland. Oh, there's Galatia, another
0: Poland, Austrian Poland. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's three Polands. There's Austrian <laughs> Poland, so Austrian Poland is is uh what we consider Galatia, which is now Western Ukraine. Um it's where Lviv is. It is a completely different political atmosphere. Poles living under France Joseph I were in a much better position than their compatriots in Russian Poland. Since 1860, Galicia had enjoyed extensive political and cultural autonomy, and they had a local parliament. Uh, Polish culture was essentially, you know, flourishing. It was able to really develop without any type of political obstacles. And Polish had even become the official language here. The Poles in Galatia, they enjoyed a privileged status. So they, they were um, politi- politically and economically dominant over other ethnic and religious groups, such as Ukrainians and Jews, um, who together made up more than half the population in Galatia. So this dynamic is, is actually you know one of the things that, that foreshadows the genocide that's perpetrated by Ukrainian national groups against Poles in, in Eastern Galicia during world war two. But I digress. I don't want to get too off topic.
0: Okay. Um, maybe maybe we can focus a little bit on, on another poll, another, another Poland, which is the Prussian Poland, which we've kind of already been talking about, but, uh, this Prussian Poland was probably the worst of the Poland's for Polish people because they had some of the harshest restrictions Where they had a basically ruthless process of Germanization. Um, Bismarck, uh, who was ruling Prussia at the time, was basically determined to create a unified German nation state under Prussian leadership. Uh, So he's trying to do his own German thing. So basically, he was super hostile towards any non German national groups that happened to fall into his territory. And they only became more restrictive after. Germany ultimately unified into into Germany. And at the same time, the Polish population is actually increasing uh, in the region of Poznan, and the Poles uh, of the region were typically wealthier. So the German government tried to uproot the Polish nobility, all these rich Polish people, by breaking up Polish estates and replacing them with German peasants. Um, The civil and the military bureaucracy basically boycotted Polish businessmen and professionals, and they didn't award them any government contracts for any of the goods and services that they provided. So there was a lot of that going on. Um, government workers were forbidden to, you know, go to Polish restaurants and shops. So if you were in the government, you can't get no pierogies. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the Polish state's uh, employees were basically booted. They were transferred out of their provinces into other ones. and. And others failed to attain just promotions or a lot of them were actually dismissed. Like they, they got shit canned because they didn't, quote, meet like, you know, government's sharp demands or, or they weren't, you know, they didn't have good national behavior or whatever that meant. Um, they also uh, uh, new appointments uh, were made to these publicly funded jobs uh, um, and they were exclusively staffed by Germans. Despite the fact that Polish taxes contributed to the creation of those positions in, in no small degree. So, you know, talk about representation. Uh, no representation, <laughs> taxation without representation. So basically, you know, shit place for the Polish people to live at the time. Uh, and this oppression, once again, just starts creating, like bubbling up this, this idea of Polish national movements in, in the German Poland.
1: Yeah, and, and I think you know because you know you know German history. You studied German history, mm-hmm. um, so I know you're you're aware of kind of like the German the dynamic between like Germans and Poles, you know, throughout the 20th century. It's been tenuous. Um, <laughs> it's been tenuous, and and that's why you get in the 20th century. You you, you do get incredibly hostile Polish governments towards Germans, mm-hmm. like like a lot. It, it's and. I mean, I mean, violence begets violence, type yep. thing. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously that's a truth for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they get know, it from you both sides, right? They're getting discriminate. It,
0: they're getting it from the German side. They're getting it from the Russian side. Pretty much, the, only the only the Galician side of it was like a nice place for the Polish people. So, yeah, I mean that that definitely. Well, yeah, very yeah, I mean, easily
1: creates a, <laughs> a very as, angry as much as people. As much as people shit on the Habsburgs, they were they were definitely out of all the three empires in Central and Eastern Europe, they were definitely the most tolerant towards ethnic minorities because they had to be, and they're the ones that like you know had the counterpeg of uh, ethnic violence that breaks out that you know really starts World War. I mean they didn't have it in their borders, but it obviously involved them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the powder keg powder keg that that blows it up but they um, you know they were definitely the most tolerant and it's probably because they had so many different minorities they right. had 13 different minorities that were you know that represented at least more than like two percent of the population so they, they had a harder a job. job to run a, a nation like that yeah and then they also just uh, the dual monarch uh, basically the big power struggle when it came to kind of putting down one ethnic group it was always the third ethnic group. Which was tended to be Slavics, um, and that usually came from the Hungarians, because the Austrians usually would want to empower uh, kind of a third ethnic group to, um, to to balance against the Hungarians, and the Hungarians would be like, hey, 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 we signed up for a two a two dominant system, not we don't need like a like a third Slavic. Uh, part of this no part tripartite this right no tripartite state. So there was there was this kind of interesting dynamic between between the Hungarians and the Austrians and trying to work with these different ethnic ethnic ethnicities. Um, but to your point about you know solidifying Polish nationalism, yeah, yeah, I mean discrimination and stuff that that usually kind of creates. That you know, it's like kind of like that old argument where where um, you hear from Israelis or Zionists where they're like, "Well, there was no Palestinian Palestinian group ever before 1940, right?" And then or 1946, and I'm like, "Well, you know, even if you're right about that, which I'm not saying you are correct about that, right? You're but wrong, but even if you are, point. even <laughs> if even if you are, even if you are right about that." There certainly is one now. Right. <laughs> like there's certainly not one that exists now. Right. And that that a lot of times the identity is created in the face of some type of adversity. oppression, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. adversity, or 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 something like that. Um. It, so it's it exists now, and once it exists, and once enough people say that they're people, then. That's just that's all it really takes or isn't to put Pandora it? back in the box. Yeah. Once people start to have a national like if somebody a new ethnic group could theoretically just appear out of nowhere. Right. You know, if they just lived in the same place for a couple of decades and had their own dialect, they would be the Gorkistani people, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. That can happen right now if we wanted to. That can happen right now. We can play I mean, it just it literally just happened. You know, the Israelis created a state out of nothing. They're mm-hmm. just like, hey, let us we're a bunch of Jews in Eastern Europe. Let's create a state and start speaking Hebrew again. They didn't right. speak Hebrew. They were speaking Yiddish. And they're like, hey, why don't we just bring back the old language? That's a crazy thing to me. I'm not saying crazy bad. I'm just saying it's a crazy like project. It's a crazy that idea that so you so just... It's so inconceivable. Yeah, that so you just
0: stand up a, uh, a nation like that.
1: Yeah, like, hey, guys, let's this isn't working out for us life in the pale is not working out we need to get out of the russian empire we need to get out of Aust- you know we need to get out of these states and create our own create our own thing right and we what we're going to do Germany. is that to is to thing. make this more powerful we are going to bring back hebrew as a language so we need to learn hebrew that's crazy right. i mean even ukraine I mean, Even they, they, like knew, the they knew Hebrew vis-a-vis of either
0: their, like, you know, religion. No, but, religion, but they like...
1: knew Hebrew, but, but religion, but not like... It wasn't like the, the... Yiddish was the popular language that was spoken between Correct. people. It wasn't like people were speaking Hebrew and the pale to each other mm-hmm. for, like, business. It was the religious language that was used for religious ceremonies. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Ukrainian thing, too, where, you know, Zelensky didn't speak Ukrainian up until about 10 years ago. You know, prior maybe sooner than that but he wasn't you know his career was a Russian comedian basically you know he was popular in Russia and he recently just learned Ukrainian a lot of Ukrainian politicians just recently learned Ukrainian and you can argue like oh was Ukrainian really kind of an ethnicity group that appeared out of nowhere or was it we have or whole was episodes it, it about this. It doesn't exist now. <laughs> well, it certainly exists now. Exactly. You know, like it exists <laughs> at this point, mm-hmm. and you can't once you create one or create this, and especially if it's backed by a state, mm-hmm. which, which we'll get into. Pull, you know, Polish nationalism is is sort of backed by states at some point. Um, you know, it's it's really impossible to go away. To,
0: to more to that point, before we exists. move on,
1: just one last random
0: rabbit hole. Is that there are plenty of like, would be nations that exist, that cross different geographic boundaries, uh, but because they're not backed by states, they don't exist. So I'm talking about you know, like our our our, our good friends the Rojavians. <laughs> what was that? Um, free Rojava or some shit like that? Do you remember that way back in the day?
1: Rojava when it's like those because. Um, you mean the Kurds, right? Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> yeah. So when they created the... So when the Kurds in eastern Syria created Java, So the Kurds were... You know, they didn't, like, lean, lean with Muslim or Islam. They led with, like, socialism, communist-type stuff. And what happened is that it attracted some groups of, like, leftist, communist kind of guerrilla wannabes... Um, the sort of people who would join like Antifa. So it attracted them and they went over to Rojava to fight and the Turks, they went up to fight in a, in a city called Afrin and the Turks just blew them up, just killed a bunch of these kids or people. But there's a video of, um, there's a video of, um, them like pr- promoting like we stand with the people of Rojava, and so it looks so you know like a, a Starbucks barista convention. <laughs> it is very funny. Yeah, <laughs> we stand.
0: But there there goes um, like a like like I mean talk about candidate for a state right for a nation state. Here's a people with a with a mostly similar language. There's obviously dialects that that change with a mostly similar culture with a shared you know uh, uh, longstanding history, like going back to antiquity. But because they're not stood up by some nation state, you know, they're not backed by somebody else more powerful. They're just not. They've they've gotten the shit end of the stick for some time.
1: Well, they are backed by somebody powerful called the United States. Well, but not the not United that States, backed, otherwise, they'd be a thing. Yeah, the United States sees them more useful as kind of like this cannon fodder. Um, <laughs> yeah, this floating diaspora that can like do their bidding in parts of the world rather right. than you know, providing them with their own solidified state because then right. that would just like kind of defeat the purpose of using them as proxies. Right. Um, they rather, them they'd rather be than They rather than bother there the to, Syrians and the, and yeah. the Turkish Turkish and, and the Iraqis
0: and other parts.
1: And then when the Kurds got their you know, their you know, in northern Iraq the Kurds are basically free, you know, from mm-hmm. the central government and they right. can kind of do what they want. They basically have their state there. Um, you know, to create that institution, they fucking ethnically cleansed Arabs out of there. There, there was ethnic cleansing campaigns, mm-hmm. so it was a brutal process. You know mm-hmm. this 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 always is because it's like the sad thing is, it's like when you want to create a nation state, when you want to create like this ethnic homogeneous state where everyone speaks the same language, and you need and you want to create it out of like you know pick a historical land that goes to some legend or something chances are you're going to have to ethnically cleanse somebody or force they don't want to go right Mm -hmm. force assimilate you got two options force assimilate or ethnically cleanse them and a lot of times it's easier to ethnically cleanse them to force than force assimilate Mm -hmm. and it's just like almost every state like the 20th century is just the a long history of people being ethnically cleansed this so many different people are just forcibly removed from their homes and that's like pretty much every ethnic group because there's um, no new land um, a a fucking country
0: doesn't pop out of the you know ocean one day and say hey here's here's like a new place for you to make your new country
1: and that's why the creation of israel at the time was just like, all right. Well, I mean, this has been happening for freaking decades. Like, wasn't it supposed so, to be somewhere deal?
0: else as well?
1: It was proposed to be in multiple places, but you know, the true goal was doing it in Israel, hmm. um, Arizona, uh, uh, Zimbabwe. I forget what African country it was supposed to be in. I want to say Zimbabwe. Um, there's a couple different places. I think there were some t- territories in in um, in. Um, in South America, there's Alaska was British, proposed, Uganda, Arizona. Um, yeah, Uganda. Obla- uh, a there-
0: specific autonomous oblast in the U- uh, USSR. Um, oh, this is a weird one. The Fugu plan was in Japan. Can you imagine a Japanese Israel?
1: <laughs> that would certainly be unique.
0: Uh, they had a Madagascar there- plan.
1: Um Yeah. There's a book. Um, So there's a book called The Yiddish Policemen's Union. And the book is about, it's a murder mystery. And it takes place in an alternate history where the Jews lose the Arab Israeli war and they're forced to go live in Alaska. Like the state of Israel is created in, in Alaska. Mm hmm. And it's a murder mystery, like involving in that alternate timeline. It's weird, but that was yeah, it was like, what a strange book.
0: Nobody wants to live in Alaska. They pay you to live in Alaska. <laughs>
1: yeah. <coughs> um, all right, we are getting off topic. So, going back to Polish patriot movements. So Polish patriotism, it rallied around the idea of you know, recreating the multicultural state of the Commonwealth. But the problem was, how could a political and civic identity survive the state's destruction? The Commonwealth doesn't exist anyway, so how do we create, like, an identity or loyalty towards it? It hasn't existed for 100 years at this point. The Polish Patriot Movement of the 19th century consisted mostly of the noble class, and you know the reason why they were rebelling is because they didn't want to share power. You know they didn't. They found themselves, you know, uh, under the yoke of autocratic Prussia, Russia, and and you know the Habsburg Empire. This so this Polish form of nationalism it takes this kind of romantic this form of romantic struggle. So for liberty and freedom, you know you'll you know you get a lot of Polish. Poles who volunteer to fight in different revolutionary groups around the world, like the American Revolution. You know, the American Revolution, we had like Polish trainers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the French Revolution, you know, you have Poles who, who are volunteering there. So you get like kind of like this Polish, you know, Romanticist movement. Romanticization, rom- you know, um, yeah. <laughs> romanticization and, and, and kind of Poles are looked like that throughout history where we we definitely, as a historical group, we, we, we do definitely romanticize Poles and Polish resistance against not only the Nazis, but also the Soviet Union, because, right. I mean, they really got the shit end of the stick. That was horrible to get mm-hmm. invaded by both of them. Polish legionaries in Ukraine right now. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. There's Polish mercenaries and stuff in Ukraine. Um, but, yeah, so it takes this kind of dynamic of, Romanticism and liberty and freedom. Um, And then, you know, there was a series of different insurrections. Um, You know, the Poles fought for their independence in in, in the (laughs) Napoleonic Wars, you know, throughout basically the 1800s in in Russia. Um, The largest bringing the January insurrection, which was, again, brutally suppressed by the Russian Empire.
0: January 6th, 1848.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Due to the failure of these revolutionary movements, many of the Polish patriots become disenchanted with these movements that they now felt were utopian and unrealistic in their demands for universal liberty. So in the mid-19th century, there was an increasing development of this national conscious among the peasantry. And not just in Poland or Polish lands across pretty much everywhere, and the nobility came to view the 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 um, you know regaining national independence movement would be impossible without support of the masses. So this is where this new modern understanding of Polishness came into being. You know, Poles became defined as a linguistic or ethnic term irrespective of their of their political consciousness or their historic association with lands of an old Polish state so this new school of modern nationalists started seeing the armed struggle for independence and and, and the the um, you know abstract principle principle of of uh, of liberty as not only unrealistic but but counterproductive due to their experiences you know uh, rebelling against the Russians so they wanted to focus on creating this concept of polishness among the masses so um you know there came these rival schools of thoughts in Poland you know was was Poland a civic tradition or is it an actual ethnic people is it a civic Tradition, like you know how we look at America today, right? Um, you know, some people do look like you know. There are people who do look like America as kind of a white historic country. Others see it as a civic, as a you know, civic tradition rather. Or peoples, same thing with France. Um, so, like, what is it? Like, is it? Are, are we a peoples or are we a civic multicultural institution that that we're trying to recreate now? Um, As geopolitical tensions grew between the central powers and Russia, Polish nationalists started to look at the growing antagonism as a way to regain their independence. By the early 20th century, Polish opinion was divided into basically two political camps. One camp was pro-Russian. The others were pro-central power, pro-Austrian, and pro-German. And the pro-Russian camp was led by a man named Roman Dmowski. And Dmowski was a leader of a Polish political group within the Russian Empire known as the National Democrats. And in his view, the future military conflict that was going to take place would have a racial character. And it would be fought between Teutonic Germany and Slavic Russia, in his words. So in the future war, Poles should sympathize with, it, with and actively help Russia, who after the victory would unite all ethnic Polish territories and grant them autonomy within the Russian Empire. Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, other groups found it better to collaborate with Germany. And, you know, the argument between them, or among them, was during the Middle Ages, when Poland was under German patronage, the country had received all, you know, all these significant contributions, such as Christianity and, you know, different advancements in technology. And that all came through the West and through Ger- Germany. So, um, you know, there was there was this type of attachment, you know, because a big part of Polish heritage is not just being Slavic. It's being linked with the Roman Catholic Church in the West as a whole. Right. So, you know, the these are the camps that are created. In addition, pro pro-Austrian circles argued that the Habsburg monarchy offered the best conditions for the Poles, which it did, because the Austrian-Hungarian Empire was a safe haven for Poles in the national independence struggle. And, you know, the Austrians weren't being nice, you know, weren't taking them in just to be nice. They were doing it as a potential sledgehammer. You know, they, they thought, hey, like these Poles in Galatia, what they could possibly do is they could link up with the Poles in the Russian Empire. So if we ever get into a war with them, you know, it would be good to kind of have that in our back pocket. Fight them to, from the uh, inside, basically. Yeah, fight them from the inside because we can link the two together and we can try to get the poles in the Russian Empire to look at our polls and say, hey, why don't we unite? So, you know, there was this Machiavellian geopolitical reason for that. Now, there is a fourth major program for advancement of Polish interest and this is probably by the most, famous person in Polish history is uh, Joseph Pilduski, who wanted to bring back Poland as a great power. And Pildusky, he opposed collaboration with any of the stronger neighbors of Poland. You know, he saw Poland as a great power. And more importantly, he demanded a defiant attitude towards any neighboring state more powerful than Poland dependence on a stronger neighbor would be tantamount to recognizing the secondary position Ooh, excuse me the secondary position of poland um you know in central and eastern europe now you can describe this policy as heroic because this policy is largely adopted and maybe it is heroic to defend your land but the same approach to this you know the this foreign policy approach, at the same time, for a small European nation, is also very reckless. I can say that again. When compared to a more re- to, to a more, I mean, Poland was fucking devastated. Thirty percent of the population died in World War II. Right. Um, when compared to the more you know real politic approach of aligning with a more powerful neighboring state, this is a, this can be considered extremely radical. And not to mention, and I'm not going to get too into this because it will just make this subject more complicated. There's a shit ton of fucking Marxists in Poland at the time, too, and socialists. Um, Specifically, a lot of them are in the Prussian side. Not as much in the Russian side. So there's a shit ton of fucking Marxists and stuff and socialists. Pildusky comes from kind of this socialist background. Um, But he's not like a pure commie. He kind of understands that the, the natural conclusion of communism is going to be bad but he comes from that tradition. So I'll try to wrap this up because we're over an hour. When the war breaks out, the poles are actually put into this advantageous position. The Russians, Germans and the Habsburg all offered pledges of concessions and future autonomy in exchange for Polish loyalty. There was you know there was some Russian territory that the Austrians wanted to incorporate into Galicia. Um, you know, one of the reasons why they let Polish nationalism fester in their borders. Meanwhile, the Russians, um, you know, they recognized the Polish right to autonomy and then promised to give them Galatia uh, and Poznań and Silesia. Now, th- these were all parts of, you know, central power Polish territories. Now, as the war turned into a long stalemate, the issue of Polish self-rule became more urgent. Um, You know, some of the main political figures, Roman Domowski, he spent the years in Western Europe hoping to persuade the Allies to unify the Polish lands under Russian rule as their initial step towards liberation. And just to kind of point out, Domowski and Pildusky are both like lifelong rivals. When Damalski dies, Podolski doesn't allow any state representatives to go to the funeral. They hate each other. Um, Damalski believed in this kind of preservation of this of Polish culture, culture through national identity. And again, his vision was really centered around the concept of ethnicity and a homogeneous nation state. Pildusky, who comes from the Polish Socialist Party, he believed in creating this multi-ethnic federation. You know, he favored he, this more inclusive approach to, to building this nation. Now, um, going back, what Pilsudski does, though, prior to the war breaking out, he had correctly predicted that a European war was about to break out and that this war was going to destroy all three partitioners. So he wants to take the pragmatic approach. Um, he had been working with the Austrians. He had been working with them to create different paramilitary groups, um, you know, prior to the war breaking out, with collaboration with the Austrian government, and um, basically they were allowed to do that to, you know, again attract Russian volunteers from from the Russian side um, to eventually use against them. Now, um, in 1916, when the war is dragging on a decision in Germany was made to restore Poland. And the reason why they wanted to do this was to create a buffer between them and the Russians. And this was going to be called the kingdom of Poland. And, um, what are we on? The kingdom
0: of Poland at this point?
1: (laughs) Yeah. The grand duchy of Poland, Congress, Poland, Polish, Austria. Um, you know, it was located on the, on the territories of the formerly Russian-ruled Congress Poland held by central powers. And, um, you know, German propaganda pamphlets targeted Poles when they invaded, saying, you know, their soldiers were going to arrive to, to liberate Poland from the Russian Empire. Now, um, during the war, the Germans do carry out ethnic cleansing campaigns against the Poles. The um you know the political unit that the the Germans are trying to create during World War one they were trying to push that Polish territory, those borders that they promised east to where it actually was. So they were actually trying to stay they were trying to push the state and then resettle Polish lands with Germans
0: so so they're basically saying like, okay, They're trying to to move the country over. Yeah. We want to create a Poland, but can you move your Poland closer to Russia?
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So they were trying to create a Poland. So they are but they, they were trying to move it. So to serve mainly strictly really as a buffer state. Right. Um, so it was, uh, the Polish border strip. That's what they were. That's what they were trying to resettle. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I guess something that's key to understanding is that Russian Poland or Congress Poland is conquered by by Germany or very early into the war, very like very quickly into the war, they conquer that area, that that territory. Um, so essentially, this state, you know, they they unite the Poles essentially, and um, during the war and this is the state and I'm going to end it here because my voice is starting to hurt. This is a state that eventually becomes the entity that is created after world war one. And that exists between 1918 and 1939 until the Soviets, until, uh, you know, world war two happens and the Soviets and the Germans invade them. Um, but really, the purpose of this episode was because again, you know, we we plan on talking about World War II a lot over the next—I don't know how long—at least months. Um, I think it's important to lay out kind of like the different histories of these states that are so involved in the war and their existence, because um, all these states have such really fascinating and. Very confusing histories. And when we start to explore different concepts of World War II, I think it's going to be important to be able to draw back and reference this type of stuff. Of course, we didn't go into any part of this timeline in great detail because we would just get stuck forever. So we really just meant to do kind of a high-level overview of the creation of the Polish nation-state. And there's still a lot more because we're not even covering the period, the interwar period. We're just covering, you know, the early history to the, um, you know, essentially the unification of the the state. I'm not going to get too much into like the constitution ratification process because that stuff is boring, but it's truly fascinating. And a lot of the in another episode in the future i'm not sure when we're gonna do it i want to go into kind of the the ethnic dynamic of germans and poles and how that leads to a pretext for the germans to invade right for um, Lebensraum. realm for yeah but um is there anything else you want to add to this
0: no man. I mean, this this is this is honestly really crazy, and I'm I'm really happy that you did the the bulk of the work here because uh, Polish history wasn't isn't like a a huge uh, area of expertise that I have. Obviously, it overlaps quite a bit with German history because of the reasons that we described today. But it's really fascinating just to like hear about how how amorphous. I think that's a good word for this. How amorphous the idea of Poland is, and how 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 much it, it changed. And I think it really gives great context to, you know, the periods leading right up to, the, you know, the, that interwar period and what ultimately helped cause World War II because, you know, at the end of all of this crazy story with, uh, God, I don't know how many Polands we talked about, like five or six, <laughs> we went through five or six iterations of, of Polands, uh, And, you know, each with their varying, you know, levels of autonomy, each with varying levels of, of, of you know, ideologies and and now suddenly after world war one they've got like a they've got a spot right they they're finally in a spot where they can unify and and frankly the borders of it doesn't make a ton of sense it's you know it's just what they ended up getting uh in some ways it's really good for them but you know leading up to world war Two, no spoiler alerts it in in other ways it just becomes like a target <laughs> for invasions from both sides so um crazy yeah.
1: It's, I mean, and then in Poland, Poland is basically controlled by a military junta for yeah. it's, so it's, it's not saying that I'm mean, as a Polish person, I'm definitely not saying that the, Pol- the Poles deserved to be invaded or anything, no. but the, a lot of their foreign policy played into, you know, the result that happened. Um, but yeah, it's a tragic situation. Um, so many Poles were killed. Um, I've had, I have Polish relatives who were fucking killed in concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's a tragic history, which we will explore in more detail. All right. My voice is starting to crack, (laughs) which I said would happen in the beginning of this episode. Um, anything else you would like to say? No, man. All right, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. It is always a pleasure. If you want to support the show, make sure you rate and review the podcast. It is the number one way to support our show. You can also join us on Patreon. Another great way to support our show. And the best way you can support us is just to tune in every single week and join us. That's it. Join us on this epic journey. (laughs) Join us. All right. Peace, guys. Peace.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.